Welcome back, Barbarians. We got a special episode for you tonight, and we appreciate you tuning in. One of the things we decided that we were going to do on this podcast was bring you guys value and that we were going to hit very, very heavily on mindset. But today, I have the extreme honor of, of interviewing, excuse me, interviewing, in my mind, a hero. Um, I get to introduce you guys to a new friend and somebody that has lived through an insurmountable amount of trauma and pain and experiences in both combat. And we're going to dive into that today. But before we start the show, um, I want to take a second and say thank you to True Work for sponsoring today's show, for bringing us this opportunity to share this story with you guys and be able to provide you guys with gear. So thank you, True Work. Um, be sure to check them out. Get a whoopee. That's what this vest is. Uh, you'll recognize that name from our gear in the military, dude. But uh, get the whoopee vest. That's my favorite piece. It's comfortable. It's easy. And yeah, it keeps you moderately warm. I'm I'm pretty excited about this. But enough about all that. Today, because we're talking about mindset, guys, I want to get right in and introduce you to my friend, Will Rollins. Will, welcome to the Blue Car Barbarians podcast, brother. Thank you so much for taking your time. Hey, man. It's a pleasure on my side also. Appreciate it. Yeah, dude, uh, I got to say, like we were talking offline, I've been really excited about this because for our audience to know, like it takes a lot to not only survive in theater, but then to come home and transition and kick ass at life and just to not let fear or or pain or hardship be period the end in your life, but be a comma for where your story really begins. And yes. so, dude, it's an absolute pleasure to be able to interview you tonight and to be able to bring this to people and share your story. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, dude. Uh, I'm Absolutely, brother. Really we've been, appreciate it. Uh, we've been following each other for a while on social media and uh, and that social media world is powerful and it's, you know, it's brought two Marines together and formed this, yeah. this brotherhood beyond just the Eagle Government anchors when we wear. So, Man, I greatly appreciate, and uh, I, uh, I was glad to accept your, your invitation. Yeah, dude, and um, it's pretty cool. We'll get into this, guys. But Will also, when he got out, he went into law enforcement, and he also owns a long-range shooting company that helps train not only civilians, but he helps law enforcement get better and do better jobs. You're just continuing to provide to the community, dude, and it's just a testament to your character. But I want to jump right in because you're a special guest, dude, and Will is not your average marine although none of us are really average there's always something wrong with us uh, especially <laughs> from the generation that we come from but i have the pleasure of, of of reading something will received a little something called a silver star and not only did will receive a silver star but will received on the same deployment a bronze star with valor and a navy and marine corps accommodation medal which for those of you that aren't tracking, that is probably that is not probably, but undoubtedly the third is the second, third and fourth, and I think sixth or seventh highest award that you can receive in combat in this country. Uh, Will, you're a patriot, hands down, you're a hero, and I am ready. I'm going to dive right into this dude, but um, just an incredible story, and I can't. Dude, this is going to be cool. So. There's the Silver Star citation, ladies and gentlemen. Bear with me. You guys know I'm a barbarian and reading is not our strength, but we're going to get through this and then uh, we'll tell us about this at the end of it. So 
The President of the United States of America takes pleasure in presenting the Silver Star to Sergeant William W. Rawlins, United States Marine Corps, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action against the enemy while serving as 1st Squad Leader, 2nd Platoon Company, Gulf, 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, United States Marine Corps, Central Command, in supporting of Operation Enduring Freedom on 19th of June, 2008. Enemy firefighters ambushed Sergeant Rollins' squad with a high volume of machine gun and rocket-propelled grenade fire from multiple prepared positions with the majority of his squad pinned down by accurate enemy fire, Sergeant Rollins rushed to within 30 meters of the enemy position in the face of almost certain death and provided suppressive fire, which allowed his men to escape the immediate ambush area. Once his Marines withdrew, Sergeant Rollins courageously maneuvered through enemy fire to rejoin his squad where he continued to attack the enemy while the wounded Marines were extracted. Then, with enemy fire still impacting around him, Sergeant Rollins dragged a Marine casualty to safety. Sergeant Rollins' aggressive actions in the face of the enemy drew fire onto his own position and provided his squad the reprieve they needed to maneuver to safety. Sergeant Rollins' bold leadership, wise judgment, and complete dedication to duty reflected great credit upon him and were in keeping with the highest traditions of the Marine Corps and United States Naval Services. Wow. Man, I think um, I think it's the second or third time I've, I've heard anybody read that. And, uh, you know, the, the first time I heard somebody read that was at the Superstar Ceremony um, in front of friends, family, and a, a battalion of you know, 1,300 Marines standing behind me. So my attention was probably not on the gentleman reading the citation. Up to that point, my family didn't really know the actions that occurred in the Silver Star battle. So in my head, only thing I think of was my mom and dad and wife the times will be pissed. Because uh, you know, I don't think they understood the the severity of what went down that day. So um, that's been going on 15 years ago, 2008, and December 2010 is when I got the award. So a little over. 13 years since I actually received the uh, the award. And it, it's still challenging and um, definitely uh, emotional to hear somebody read that to me. So, Yeah, um, I'll be honest with you, dude. Uh, it gave me goosebumps reading it, right? Um, I've been on the other side of that where you're standing information yeah. Kind of like what you're talking about, listening to them mm -hmm. read something. And you, when you're listening to somebody read it, you're just thinking back to all the different shit typically that happened. And it's yeah. your boy, it's one of your, it's somebody in your battalion that you respect, a boy, a friend, or whatever, an, another Marine that you've done, com you've performed combat with, you know, or like been in combat with. And you don't really, at that point, you just kind of tune it out. But reading this out loud while talking to you was actually... Uh, yeah, it gave me goosebumps, man. Um, let's get into this a little bit. Uh, first of all, you're, I know I've said this to you, but dude, you're a hero. You're a hero. And when life served you a challenge where a lot of men would cower, let's just be real. There's a lot of men that cower in combat and that there's no blame to that. Like it's just some people 
our bill for it, you stepped up and you saved lives. So uh, I've heard that before. I don't necessarily look at it as bravery. I don't know. Damn sure I don't look at myself as a hero. I look at myself as a uh, an infantryman, a sergeant, a Marine who's put in a pretty bad situation. And I've, I've told people before that I don't think it's myself. I don't think of it as a courageous act. Um, I think of it more of a, a fearful act, you know, fear that if something's not done right now, we're going to take more casualties. If something's not done right now, we're all going to die out here. So it's kind of a, a hard balance between bravery and, and fear. But there was still the action element, right? You didn't. Something had to be done. Yes. but Something had to be done. And I knew that at that point. Yeah. So talk us through that. What was that like, if you don't mind? What what happened that so, day? So on that day, we'd only been in Afghanistan. Um, we probably been in Afghanistan six weeks at that time. I think we got to Afghanistan at the end of April. Or, uh, yeah, definitely end of April. But by the time we got to our uh, our FOBs, it was probably mid-May, maybe the end of May. Yeah. And uh, we initially went there to train Afghan police. Second Battalion and Seven Marines was tasked to train Afghan police. And so we were scattered all across the, the southern side of Afghanistan. And at the time, it was quiet because there had never been a battalion of infantry Marines in that area of operation. And But we quickly, our, our mission quickly turned from training Afghan police they're just fighting Taliban and staying alive for the next 10 months. So on that particular day, well, leading up to that day, we didn't know the area. And so there was no um, leadership recons. There, there, there was nobody there that, that we swapped you know, places with. Now, there were some, there were some yeah. Army guys there. There were some Army guys there that remained there with us for the rest of the deployment. Those guys were great. But pretty much, you know, we had, we had three squads. And what we would do, one squad would be on post for three days. The second, third squad would be on patrol. After three days, squad one's on patrol for six days. Squad two's on post. And so just a constant rotation, three days on post, six days on patrol. And while on patrol, we would do, each squad would do at least one patrol during the day, one patrol at night. So we're pushing uh, anywhere from four to six patrols a day. Uh, myself being a, yeah, myself being the first squad leader, for example, uh, I'd be on patrol, second squad's on QRF, third squad's on post. The moment first squad got back from patrol, I'm sorry, the moment second squad got back from patrol, we would take over QRF, second squad would go on patrol. So for those six days, you're either on patrol or you're QRF for patrol. Uh, really, we look forward to the three days of post because that was our downtime. And so that was the time to relax, um, hang out, work out, do whatever we need to be, kind of like a little R&R &R within our compound. Um, the compound we were in was, was small. Um, I could almost throw a baseball from side to side or from front to back. So it was probably 80 yards by 80 yards square. Um, our nearest friendly unit to us was um, another another company, another platoon in our company, which was probably about three and a half hours, four hours trip on Harbaugh on the Humvees. So we were the, my platoon was the furthest Southwestern platoon in Afghanistan at the time, which, at the time, uh, we enjoyed it at first. You know, we're away from away from all the brass, away from all the nonsense. But that means we we're the last to get supply. We we're the last to get mail, and then uh, often we were too far to get uh, air support, which became a problem. Uh, the days leading up to that uh, June 19th day, 
Every day we'd push ourselves further and further, either on foot or in our vehicles, learning the area. And on that particular day, we were right along um, the river. So uh, I planned the patrol route, did the map, did all the the, uh, the grid and stuff, turned it all in, who's going, what gear we're taking, all the serialized gear, all that nonsense, turn it in, it gets approved, so we punch out. And we leave our compound, we go over the bridge, and our plan was, or my plan was, to follow this river north all the way up to the mountains, which is probably about a three-hour trip, find somewhere to cross the river, come back down that same side, but on the, on the north side of the river. And we knew there were multiple villages, little mud hut villages along the river. So we were going to stop, talk to them, introduce ourselves. We have Afghan police with us. We have some interpreters with us. Just let the, the locals know that, hey, we're here. We're going to try to help. Uh, we're trained that we're working with Afghan police to, you know, to better their communities. You know, we had uh, soccer balls and stuff to give away. We had a, uh, we want to try to, we had some some uh, engineers coming in to help, re, you know, build the schools and repair homes and build water wheels and all that fancy um, handshake type stuff. So on this particular day, we're skirting along the river on the south side. Uh, one of our Humvees had a flat tire, so that took about an hour to change. So while while that's being changed, uh, me and a couple of guys, we go on a little short foot patrol through the village, meet some people, shake some hands. And about 800 yards away, 1,000 yards away, the, the village on the north side, almost directly across from us, we see cars coming down from the mountains into that village. Hmm. Kind of suspicious. So once we got the Humvee tire change, we continued north along the south side of the river, following a bank. And as soon as we found a spot to cross, I'd say, hey, let's go ahead and cross. Let's find out what's going on over here. And up to this point, we had not been in a, a tick. Now, we've had some minor uh, sporadic gunfire, uh, RPG here and there, rockets on our base. But for us, gun to gun, man to man, we hadn't been in a, a serious firefight up to that point. It was a hot, I remember it being a hot day. Uh, as, as the Humpies crossed the river, uh, we would stop, you know, get out, dip our cables in the in the water, let that cold, cold water come down on our heads, our backs. It was, it was pretty refreshing. Yeah. And I'm real big into uh, taking pictures, man. I take pictures everywhere I go. On every deployment, yeah. I've taken taken thousands of pictures. And so I remember stepping on my vehicle, snapping pictures of my guys, dipping their heads in the water, you know, dumping buckets or Kevlar's of water on their heads. And it's kind of funny. We all had a good laugh. And then we saddled up and continued on. We crossed the river, started going south back toward that village. That village, uh, the name was Dalatabad. So as we're, we're coming up to the village and um, nobody's outside, and that was that was kind of a creepy feeling. So I got on the radio and told my guys, "Hey, keep your eyes open because something's not right. Nobody's outside. You know, it's it's in the middle of the day." This village was probably 300 yards long and 100 yards wide, just literally a mud hut village along the side of this riverbank. And then there was about 200 yards of crops on both sides of the river. So the actual river itself, the, the body of water river was probably only 50 yards out of this 400 yard bank. Right. And of course there's irrigation canals coming from the river into the crops and all that stuff. So as we're coming up into the village, um, I'm in the lead vehicle, ride vehicle commander. So uh, we had four vehicles and five bodies in each vehicles. So four vehicles and 20 bodies. Uh, we had a corpsman with us, 
We had two civilians with us that was uh, Dine Corps employees to help us train that, the uh, Afghan police. And then, of course, we had uh, interpreters. One interpreter, two civilians, a corpsman, and the rest were Marines. As we come into the village, a white Toyota Corolla, you know, the white, little yeah. four-door white sedans, you know, that you, yeah, there's thousands of them out there. It comes out. My gunner, as we're traveling north, or traveling 12 o'clock, our gunner scanned out, you know, just rotating that 50 cal in the turret. So he's facing toward like our three o'clock, and this vehicle comes out, and I instantly knew something's not right. So I start slapping him on the leg, and before he's able to spin around, they start shooting, uh, shooting us with a machine gun. Out of the uh, car. I don't know how many rounds. What's that? Out of the car. Yep. So I don't know how many rounds hit our vehicle, but definitely you hear that ping, 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 out in front of our vehicle. That car comes out. Uh, the 50 cal starts shooting at them. They do a U-turn to go back to the village. And the whole time that that 50 cal is lighting them up. There's no doubt that he's he's hitting his mark. He's hitting his target. Vehicle disappears back into the village. And uh, I'm on the radio. And once that vehicle disappeared into the village, a guy stepped out, took a knee, shot RPG at our vehicle. It hit right in front of the vehicle, peppered the, the radiator in the front of the vehicle with, with shrapnel from that RPG. Uh, did completely disable our, our vehicle, but definitely caused it some issues at the time. So I get out, return fire. Everybody's gone. There's no way in front of us. Everybody's going to get out and shoot. Where everybody does get out and start shooting, so I'm like, cease fire. There's nothing to shoot at at the moment. And so, Marines. yep. So we put a plan together. Uh, we moved forward up to the last point where we saw the vehicle. And while we're doing that, a man that we thought was a village elder approached us. He's talking as fast as he talks. You know how they do. And so I get my interpreter up there and say, man, what's this guy saying? Our terminal says that there was four wounded Taliban in that vehicle. Uh, three of them are injured, that they fled to the riverbanks. And so because this little mud hut village, the uh, roads are too narrow for us to safely get our Humvees down there. So if we got a Humvees down there, there would be no chance to turn around, no chance to get the doors open. It was just enough room to get the Humvees on the, we're not doing that. Give me your dismounts. And in my head, I'm thinking, these fools are, are suited enough to shoot at us, game on. Yeah. So I get my dismounts to include um, uh, Corman and the interpreters again. So we do a, a normal foot patrol about 50 yards into the village. We find the vehicle full of bullet holes, full of RPGs, full of blood. So we're like, all right, they couldn't have gone far. That same village elder tells us that they, they fled to the riverbank. They fled to the river, which is about... 200 yards of open uh, farmland, and then you start getting to the thick crops and then to the river. He said they're unarmed. All four of them fled to the river. They're hiding in the in the, the crops. So, man, game on. Now, let's do it. So, I tell my guys, hey, let's get online, get some good dispersion, look for blood, look for anything. Let me know if you see anything. So, we got our, we got a dispersion tour. I'm pretty much in, in the middle of the squad, so I can show the left side, I can show the right side, I can see everything. We get in the middle of this field, and a machine gun opened up on us. Kind of find out that so-called village elder was a Taliban leader, and he walked us, he gave us informa false information to get us out and open, and I fell for it. So at that point, um, we did what we did what we're trained to do. 
So we're pushing, we're pushing forward. Machine gun buffer opens up from our right. At that point, it's about 100 yards away. What do we do? We turn. We saw buddy team bounding because we're out in the middle of the open. And so there's no cover until you get about 60 yards. So we had, we had a bound probably 75, 80, 100 yards maybe. And so the first, third, fifth, seventh man shooting, walk two, four, six, eight, moving forward and so on. We're literally doing, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. So we get about 50 yards from the machine gun bunkers, kind of find out there's two machine guns. I didn't realize that until later on. But one opened up on us initially, and then while we're putting team bounding, the second machine gun opened up on us. PKMs or? Yeah. Yeah, and they had them. Uh, they had one of them mounted on the tripod. They they literally had a fortified machine gun bunker, and uh, you know how they got the brick courtyard walls. Yeah. And so these brick courtyard walls had a bunch of uh, shrubs and greenery, like vines growing up on them. So what they had did, they had pulled down some of those bricks, mounted that machine gun, and it was still hidden cap behind the foliage. And so if you just glance over there, you would never notice it until they start shooting and disrupted some of that vegetation and. Then you know it was playing a day once they start shooting at us where they were at. So we get about 50, 60 yards from them. And uh, the only place for us to get any cover was small trees, uh, just wide enough to almost cover a man's width and body gear. And then there's our small irrigation canals. Some of them were knee deep, some were a little bit higher, about waist deep. So once we got through our um, our cover. Somehow during the movement, I ended up on the far left of the squad, just trying to maneuver the squad. And uh, we're fighting. They're shooting. We're shooting. RBUs are flying. Um, very, very high volume of fire. Like a high volume of fire that I've never experienced before at that point. And at that point, I'd been in uh, been Iraq in 04 and 05. And so I, I thought in my head, I've been a sergeant for a couple of years. Uh, I thought I was battle hard. You know, ready for war, sergeant. But uh, this is a big eye opener. So I end up on the far left, and this is probably a four or five hour battle. That you know, so there's a lot of time goes on in between this. It's hard to, as you can probably imagine, yeah, articulate a, a four or five hour battle down into a short story, or even like in a war, like you just read. Yeah. So. So you guys were in a tick, well, troops in contact for the listeners that aren't um, uh, veterans or military related. That's what tick means. When he's talking about machine guns and we're talking about RPKs and, R- and PKMs and stuff, that's just a certain type of 7.62 caliber machine guns that the enemy has um, that they got from the Soviets and so on and so forth back in, what, when was yeah. it, the 80s or something? But um, yeah. so... And when he's talking about cover guys, he's talking about they were trying to hide behind trees that are no wider than you or me and in in little tiny ditches that were two or three feet wide and at the deepest waist deep, but on average is about three feet as your knees. So when he's saying high volume of machine gun fire, and this is just to clarify for our audience, uh, he's he's talking about accurate fire from machine gun guys at 60 yards, bullets raining everywhere on top of your men thankfully that are spread out to make them have to pick targets so they can't just 
lob them at all of you. He's talking about RPGs flying overhead, accurate fire, not just seeing an RPG, but feeling the explosion, having dust hit, having concussion from it. I mean, the real deal, uh, you're sparingly talking about that, but just to give our audience an idea here. So uh, the first guys that we took, uh, young, young Lance Corporal, Saw Gunner, M M249. As you know, it's a, it's a 5.56 fully automatic weapon. He gets shot through the hand. I remember him yelling, hey, Saw Ron's, I'm hit. I said, where you hit at, bud? He told me his hand. I said, you got to wrap yourself up right now. And so he wraps himself up. And then, uh, man, the worst, the worst thing you ever want to hear as a, as a squad leader, as a Marine, that same, that same uh, young Saw Gunner, hey, Saw Ron's, I'm out of ammo. So, you know, so at that point, we've been in that battle for a while. He's gone through you know, 600 rounds already. Hey, Sergeant Ross, I'm out of ammo. What do I do? You just got to sit there, bud. You know, there's, there's, there's nowhere for you to go. We're in the middle of the open, and there's there's nine Marines fighting against 60-plus uh, enemy combatants. Was there and 60 for, guys in that yeah, trench? there was estimated 60. Holy so, shit. And so for him, you know, for the second half of the battle, he had to stay behind a tree, and he ended up getting shot again in the side because that tree wasn't wide enough to protect him so he just kind of had to just wiggle back and forth he'd get shot on his left side and get you know just rounds impact on around him so he ended up getting shot multiple times um and luckily for him survived and made a full recovery so, so during this um we had a uh, forward air controller with us he was a helicopter pilot he was a captain prior enlisted guy in the 90s he was uh with he was with the unit out of Camp Lejeune. I can't remember the name of the unit, but he's with the Scott Sniper Platoon. I see an enlisted guy, got, got went to college, came back and became an officer with a helicopter pilot. He had a volunteer to come to Afghanistan with us to be our, uh, you know, our fact for the air, our forward air controller. And so he was uh, behind her. So I was on the far left, he was on the far right, and there was a small courtyard wall there. He's behind that courtyard wall, taking a knee, holding the radio to try to get us some air help and while he was doing that he took a round through the armpit and uh him an armpit it came out of chest hit his bulletproof vest or hit that plate went back into him hit his heart and he had a uh, he, he was he was kia and probably within about 20 seconds after getting hit and so that was that was our first uh kia casualty in the battle and then uh man what seemed like just a few minutes later which i, I don't know the timeline I just, yeah. and it's just, I can't recall how long it was, but we had another Lance Corporal took, took a round, took a, took a round to the face. And but that was our second KIA. And so at that point, you know, we had two KIA and we had several shot. And that's when I realized, hey, man, this is, we're getting low on ammo. I got a couple of mags left. I got several guys out of ammo. We've probably been in the battle at this point several hours. You know, everybody's got cotton mouth, we're out of water, it's hot. And I just remember being so hot and thirsty. I'm just dipping my, or just splashing some of that stagnant trench water in my mouth just to feel something wet in my mouth. And so there was a, a corporal near me. I said, hey, man, we got to do something. And then I just remember seeing, I would look to my right, I'd see my squad members just look at me like, what are we going to do? And this is our first serious firefight. I'm like, man, we, something's got to be done. So that's when I realized, I mean, the way those machine guns could traverse, you know, I was on the far outer range of what the machine guns could 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 reach. 
And so I said, man, uh, I just made the decision that I'm going to try to kill everybody in that machine gun nest or, uh, or at least freaking die trying, you know, because we couldn't just sit there. We run out of ammo. Yeah. And so I just remember getting up, telling this corporal, I said, hey, man, cover me. And I told all my squad, cover me. And so I just took off running. And there was another small berm, about 20 or 30 meters from the enemy. My plan was just to get to that berm, reload, and then rush again. And so I'm running up to that berm, and the whole time I'm shooting. And there were several several guys in that nest. Um, and from I think there was five or six of them, and I'm just shooting just as I'm running. And at that point, I don't know if I'm shooting accurately or not. I don't know if, if I'm hitting them, if I'm missing, but I just know that I was able to get to that small berm. And I remember thinking, like, I remember praying, like, hey, hey, dear Lord, thank you for letting me get this far. Now let's figure out what to do next, because now I'm out in the open. I'm in between. I'm in between the enemy and my and my squad, which is probably not the best place to be. So I remember getting on the radio, making sure everybody knew that I was in the middle. Like, man, don't shoot me. I'm in the middle. And I remember asking that corporal if he had a smoke grenade. I want everybody. My plan was to pop a smoke grenade. And it's like, I'm at the location where you see the smoke. You know, tell me you tell me what color smoke it is. That way that there was no doubt that, that they saw me. They knew where I was at. Um, I, I didn't have a smoke grenade. He didn't have a smoke grenade. And so I was like, well, we just got to figure something out. And so my plan was, so I reloaded, fired a few more rounds. And my plan was just go over to Berm, go to that machine gun nest, and then eliminate everybody in that nest that was left. While I go over to Berm, um, I never saw the guy that fired RPG. But I playing that day, I remember hearing that sound. and. I think it hit right behind me, behind my feet. But next thing I know it, I'm, I'm laying on my back. And man, I hated, uh, this didn't bite me in the butt. I hated slings. And so I never, I rarely slung my rifle. I just carried it. And then uh, I remember laying on my back and my ears ringing. Uh, I feel some tingling in my arms, tingling in my head, tingling in my legs. And uh, I didn't have my weapon. And so I I could see um, a guy jump up with AK on full auto burst. Um, I seen him shooting at me, and I, at that point I could just all I could hear was a ringing, but I couldn't hear the machine gun. But it's like in slow motion I could see the rounds, and in my head, in my mind, plain as day I could still see it. It seemed like those rounds were coming straight toward me, and it seemed like just the way his burst was, just you know the do 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 do. You know, if you shoot a fully automatic weapon, your barrel's gonna rise. It seemed like those bullets just skipped over me now was that my mind uh, playing tricks my imagination i don't know but it seemed as real as possible so my plan was i said i'm not going to lay here and so i just started rolling to try to get back over that berm and when i rolled back over that berm i found my weapon and so but that um so grab my weapon uh eliminate the rest eliminate those guys that was in that machine gun nest and then at this point it's starting to get kind of the sun's starting to go down. And uh, when we was over there, once the sun went down, they knew we owned the battlefield, so they wouldn't fight us. So the, the volume of fire started started coming down some, and uh, I told myself, I get now that the, their, uh, the machine gun bet, the machine gun nest is uh, taken care of, the volume of fire is coming down. Now my place where I need to be is back with my squad. I need to check on them. I need to recoup. Uh, make sure everybody's okay, and we need to put a plan together and to get off this, out of this open ground. 
because you know now we're pushing three or four hours into it we're still out in the open and at that point i didn't know how many insurgents there were i didn't know how many were killed i just knew we were in a bad spot still yeah so me and that corporal i bound back to him and i get to him and then he said hey I'll, I'll cover you. You get back to the trench. The trench is where we initially stopped, where everybody was at, where our casualties were. So he picks up his rate of fire. He covers me. Um, I run that 35, 40 feet, dive back into the canal. And then, of course, I'll pop up. I start covering him. He's running toward me. He probably gets eight feet from me. He gets shot in the back. He falls so close to me where I literally grab him, pull him into the trench, and then uh, dealt with him. Luckily, it hit him about an inch and a half from the bottom of his plate. It's dead center of his spine. So, you know, he wounded, nothing life threatening. But, it, you know, if he'd have been a, he was about five foot nine. I said, dude, if he'd have been five, ten and a half, that would have hit you in your spine. So we kind of, we got a good laugh out of that. So at this point, I got to figure out what we're going to do. We're still taking, still taking gunfire, not nearly at the rate that we were. And so I just tell everybody, hey, we're going we're gonna to pick up a rate of fire, and one at a time, we're going to move behind this courtyard wall. And so everybody moves behind the courtyard wall, and I'm trying to get everybody back towards where the vehicles were. Oh, and that, that's another thing. While we're down here, due to the terrain and the villages, the, the mud huts, our vehicles were no help at all because there was no way they could get to us. And so they kept trying to dismount. They try to get down to us and they would take fire. And so we had those eight or nine guys down here fighting. And then we had another eight or nine guys on the vehicles, but we were unable to support each other. So that was, I didn't know what was going on at the time until afterwards. I didn't know why they weren't coming down to us. I didn't know they, they weren't down there with us. I just knew that where we were at was in a bad situation. So we got everybody off the battlefield. We have the Lance Corporal got shot in the face. He was off of the battlefield. All the Marines were off except me and one other Lance Corporal. And then uh, our KA that got shot in the chest. So me and him decided, like, you know, we're trying to drag him. At this point, we have hardly any energy. We're exhausted. We're dehydrated. We're, we're almost out of ammo. And so we made, I made a decision to take his body gear off of him. That would reduce some of the weight. So as we're dragging him off the battlefield, we're literally skull dragon and reaching down and pulling him up to us then we skull drag again pull him up to us but anytime we popped our head up or stuck an elbow up or our butt came up we were getting shot at yeah so we finally uh it, it took i don't know it seemed like eternity to get everybody out the battlefield because once we did um it seemed like once we got out of that open ground the enemy said all right we're done shooting at these guys for now um because I think they knew that once we got out of that open field, we were linking back up with our brothers back in their vehicles. And then we would own the battlefield at that point. And I don't think they were ready for that yet. But once we got back in the vehicles, man, um, we got accountability for everybody. I mean, we made the 30-minute trip back with our KAs back to our fathers as freaking fast as we could. Um, the Marine that was shot in the face, uh, he did get mad about that because his body was still alive. But um, he died on medevac bird. And I think... Uh, hardest part of that entire day for me with these past 15 years of knowing that those two Marines lost their lives. They put that ultimate sacrifice because uh, I was just ready. I thought I was ready for battle. 
So, yeah. I certainly wish that I would look at the bigger picture instead of just saying, hey, let's move the Taliban fled to the riverbanks. Let's go kill them. I wish I would have stepped back and took a breath and not been so freaking gung-ho and trigger-happy to get in combat in Afghanistan, you know? But yeah. It's kind of... So for years, man, I played a Monday morning quarterback. You know, I played the what-if game, and it caused me... Uh, Taught me a lot of hell, a lot of depression, a lot of problems. I ended up leaving the Marine Corps unhappy. I got out honorably, but uh, I knew I, I thought getting out of the Marine Corps would fix everything. And I thought if I separated myself from the Marine Corps, I would no longer have the thoughts and feelings that I had, which ended up not being true. Um, ended up me, um, getting divorced and going down that road and it took me you know that that Afghanistan deployment was 2008 I got this awarded the Silver Star in 2010 got out in 2010 and by 2012 I was divorced and man it really I was I was spiraling out of control until probably 2016 just not knowing what to do with myself man it, it took a number of years to view things differently yeah, I can imagine. I mean, did you you shoulder all that mentally? Uh, you got hit essentially by an RPG. Thankfully, it didn't directly contact you, but yeah. I mean, the trauma to your brain, the TBI <laughs> from mm -hmm. that. And then, I mean, you watch people die in front of you. You crushed the enemy, thankfully, but I mean, this wasn't a three minutes that felt like 45. This was yeah. 10 hours of your life that you'll never get back. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's a, it's incredible. And I can understand where you, you beat yourself up, but I can promise you on the same front, those men are alive because of your leadership. The ones that I hope so. Here. I hope so. I can almost for, certainly for sure say that because a lot of people, they freeze. Like you see that even in the workplace, man, if something bad happens, an accident happens, everybody just yeah, deer in the headlight. And you had to get your composure. You know, it's not as much as you war game in your mind. It's a whole different thing when it's really going down. So that's incredible. We'll, uh, we'll move on from the silver star, dude. That, thank you for sharing that in depth. Um, that's a, it's incredible. And, I mean, I'm glad you made it back, brother. Yeah, appreciate it, brother. I'm glad you made it back. Moving on. Same deployment. Hard to believe. Mm -hmm. The president of the United States takes pleasure in presenting the Bronze Star Medal for service set forth in the following citation. For heroic achievement in, in, connect, in connection with combat operations against the enemy while serving as 1st Squad Leader, 2nd Platoon, um, Company G, 2nd Battalion, 7th Marine Regiment, Marine Corps Forces, Central Command, forward on 8th August 2008 in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. 2nd Platoon was conducting cordon and search operations in Farah Province, for all province Afghanistan, when Sergeant Rawlins heard over the radio that an adjacent numerically superior 
or an adjacent Marine platoon clearing the nearby village to of Shawan, sorry, excuse me, had been ambushed by a numerically superior enemy force in a well-prepared trench line, rapidly displacing his squad by vehicle to the engaged platoon's location. He saw one of the adjacent platoon's vehicles disabled by rocket-propelled grenades in the kill zone of the ambush. The disabled vehicle was burning with Marines still trapped inside and other Marines trapped in the kill zone behind the burning vehicle and another vehicle, Sergeant Rollins quickly directed his driver to drive their vehicle into the kill zone. He dismounted for, he sorry, between the enemy and the burning vehicle, shielding the Marines in the burning vehicle. He dismounted to provide suppressive fire with his rifle as his squad dismounted to recover the the casualties. One of the casualties were loaded into his vehicle. He, he remounted and directed his driver out of the kill zone by his courageous actions, bold initiative, and complete devotion to duty. Sergeant Rollins reflected great credit upon himself and upheld the highest traditions of the Marine Corps and United States Naval Service. Sorry, that was a little choppy, but again, you're in a position where you got Marines in a shit spot. Yeah. And you take action. What was what happened that day? Well, first, this one's a lot better outcome than the, the story we just hit on. So this one here is a little bit definitely easier to talk about, uh, definitely with less emotions. And uh, so I just get into it. So our squad was a QRF or force recon squad who wanted to push through this uh, town called Shawan. Uh, and it goes into great detail on Google, Battle of Shawan. And I think the, I think it quotes like 250 to 350 or somewhere around there insurgents. And there was about 40 of us between our squad and the, and the Force Recon Squad. So we were on the north side of the village. I just Force Recon Squad was going to push through the south side. And I don't, pardon me, I don't exactly remember what their mission was. I just remember, hey, Force Recon is going to push through Shawan and you're the QRF. Roger that. That's all the information I need. So we were on the north side. We heard their um, we heard their tick start. So we immediately load up. We push into the village. Now we had we had eight Humvees total. And so when we do a patrol, four Humvees on patrol, four Humvees QRF, and then David Swap. We had one seven ton that we never took out. And we had one MRAP that we never took out, mainly because when we went up a patrol, we were on the hardball roads, and that MRAP was so freaking rough. And so what, what should be a, a four-hour patrol, let's say a three-hour patrol north and a three-hour patrol back for six hours, and it would take double that because you got to go slow for the MRAP because you're just bouncing all around because the thing's so heavy and the, and the suspension is so stiff. And so the two times we took the MRAP out, it saved our lives, and this being uh, this being one of them. So I always rode front vehicle, vehicle commander. So on, on this particular day, we're on the north side of the village, force recons on the south side, they start pushing through. They get ambushed by a large amount of insurgents. Uh, we all knew that Shawan had insurgents. It's one of those those villages that, if we wanted to get in a, a fight, we'd go over there and poke the bear on, on one side, get in a little shootout, you know, maybe maybe shoot a few up, and then roll back out. That was our that was our tick for the day. But it was guaranteed any time in a in daylight or night, if you went through the village of Shawan, you were getting a tick. Um, 
that that's just how it was. That that's that that was their stronghold. And so we cruised right through the middle of the village, you know, as fast and as safely as we could with our with our vehicles. And so we see where the Force Recon vehicles are. They're on a, you know, they're on their skirmish. So they're they're probably 100, 150 yards between their vehicles. And so I tell my my driver, uh, hey, get close as you can to their first vehicle. And so we come up, we turn on line. So now I'm in the MRAP, my three Humvees are to my left, and their four or five Humvees are to my right. So now our MRAP's right, right in the middle. And man, man, these these insurgents was probably 100, uh, 200 yards in front of us. And they're running back between cars and vehicles. And they had no cover discipline, which my all the gunners were loving that. You know, that's like them shooting fish in a barrel. You know, they're having, you know, they're having a field day up there with those machine guns. And then we're popping out and we're shooting over over our doors. And um, we have so much fire. Um, being rained on them, but they're not—they're not shooting back at us. If they are, it's not accurate fire. So this is this is like a grunts, uh, wet dream, you know. Yeah. And so then, one, you know, they're they're lobbing RPGs at us, but they're going so far over our head that they're they're afraid to come out of the trench and shoot it directly at us. So they're just kind of sticking RPGs over their over their heads and just shooting at them because we're watching these RPGs going, you know, 30, 40 feet above our vehicles. They were kind of finding a little humor in that. And I remember, man, I'm I'm in there eating. You know, I get out, I dump a mag, get in, I'm eating some dried mango, pounding some rippets. And uh, you remember rippets? The I little think, energy, yeah. the little yeah, yeah. the little I energy drinks. Yeah. yeah. I I found them locally at my dollar store. They're in a taller can, though. They're like in a uh like a monster can, but they're the same, same brand. So every now and then I'll drink one just to yeah. reminisce on memories. So um, I don't know if they got lucky or they just finally said they got ballsy, but they hit the vehicle to my right, which the, the force recon vehicle. They hit that vehicle smacked on and uh, that vehicle, you know, caught on fire. And I'm like, all right, nobody's getting out. So I'm just, I keep eyeballing I'm eyeballing. I got my vehicle, I'm shooting back and I keep looking over there and nobody's getting out. And then two or three, I don't know how many RBGs, there were several RBGs hit that vehicle and nobody's dismounted. And so I told my driver, hey, nobody's getting out of that Humvee that's 200 yards or 150 yards to our right. Uh, and that thing was on, you know, it's now the engine department's boiling with with fire and smoke. And so, so in my mind, like, they're all dead or they're concussed or something's going on because common sense is going to have you get out of a burning vehicle. Um, yeah. So I tell him, I said, hey, drive over there. We got to do something. And then my driver, um, he was a corporal. He's from Texas. I'm from Texas. Ended up being one of my best friends. Um, I was at his wedding, um, and, and we're still friends today. And so we kind of like, we thought it like, you know, we're very like-minded. So I could see him and know what he's thinking. He could see me and know, know what I was thinking. Because at this point, for the last two years, we were side by side every day, you know, either in Twin Palms or now Afghanistan. Uh, and, uh, so anyway, so we, we get this MRAP as fast as this thing could go for these 150, 200 yards, bouncing all over the freaking place. And I remember ammo cans falling and everybody's yelling, just trying to hold on to something, especially the guys at the back, because they don't know what's going on. And so I remember pulling up and I kept telling them, move up, move up, because I wanted the MRAP in front of this burning Humvee. 
to block the enemy fire. So we pull up there, and these guys still haven't gotten out. So I tell my guys, get the get the fuck out of the back of the MRAP, get these guys out. I don't know how many's in there. I know there's at least three of them. I know this could be a driver, this could be a vehicle commander, and at least could be a turret gunner. And I don't know if he was in the back seat. And to this day, I couldn't say if there's three of them or five of them in there. But you know, and so we pull up, and as soon as we pull up, of course, as this MRAP is going across the battlefield, we get we're like a bullet sponge, literally like. I basically just grab my gunner and just tell him, hey, get down. And you hear, bing, 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 bing. You know, we were getting lit up. But I felt pretty safe in this MRAP, you know. And so once we get up there, I remember telling my guys, hey, we got to get out and get these guys. But then I'm thinking, well, we're the bullet sponge now of the battlefield. And so I said, screw it. My plan, I was going to get out of the MRAP, run to the front of the MRAP, and just start engaging these guys. Because now they're standing up, shooting at us. You can see them playing today. The and then, uh, I remember I got out. I said, hey, I'm going to ride cover. So my machine gun gunner, his uh, machine gun was actually locked up. So he's up there doing malfunction drills, trying to get this thing to fire. So I get out, jump out of the MRAP. I go to front end MRAP, and I'm just laying it to these guys, man. I'm shooting as fast as I can, doing mag changes. And then I look up, and my my driver, that corporal I was telling you about, Corporal Carper, He's he's no longer in a vehicle. He's in the front of the vehicle also with me. So now we're both shooting at these guys, which um, looking back, man, it was kind of a kind of a cool experience, you know, with your best friend and you're side by side and you know, and we're, we're we're giving these guys hell. And then we get all their their wounded loaded up out of their MRAP into our I'm sorry, out of their Humvee and into our MRAP. And then we get back in the MRAP and we take them back to the uh, casualty collection point. Um, they're all concussed and, you know, shrapnel wounds and stuff like that. I think you know, a couple of them had a couple of burn injuries. But we dropped them off the casual collection point, all made a, a full recovery from what I'm told. But that entire battle, there was no no KIA. Uh, there were several wounded in action. But once we dropped them off their casual collection point, we loaded back up the MRAP, went back and uh, enjoyed the fight. And that was one of the few times we got air on station. And, uh, man, that that was... That's a beautiful sight. And when, when and, uh, the, the, the jets came and they were dropping dropping 500 pound bombs, literally 200 yards from. And uh, I don't know how graphic you want to get with this, but after after some of the bombs were dropped, they want to do a battle damage assessment. So I'm like, let's go. So it was a few from my squad and a few from the recon squad. And I remember finding a foot. With the, there was no ankle, it was just a foot with about 10 inches of like ligament or something. I remember picking it up and throwing it in my in my buddy's drop bag. <laughs> he got pissed at me for doing that. And so we get down there um, into the village, just trying to do what type of battle a battle damage assessment there was. And we ended up getting into another firefight. And so our lieutenant's like, that's fine, we'll call in air again. And so they call in air, and these guys are taking pop shots at us, we're taking pop shots at them. And then air comes back, and I'm gonna. Uh, we were we were definitely danger close, and we're in, we're in another trench again. The enemy's you know 150 yards, 200 yards from us. They're gonna do another round, drop some bombs, and so I just turn around, I sit down, and I pull out my jerky. I munch on the jerky. I tell my lieutenant, "Anything jerky?" He's like, "Yeah." He grabs the jerky and he starts eating it. He's like, "Wait a minute, sorry, Ron. Did you hand me jerky from the same fucking hand that you were carrying that foot around with?" Sorry, sir. Kept on eating the jerky, but anyway, they did, they came and did another another run, dropped some more bombs, and at, at that point, the interview was completely done. And uh, man, we probably between 
my squad, the Rules Recon squad, and the Jets, man, we probably have made about 150 insurgents on that battlefield with no KA from our side. So that was uh and how long was that battle? From start to finish, probably six hours. Damn. The shortest battle ended up being the Silver Star battle. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. So I don't even know where to begin with that. So so you got a bronze star with Valor for um essentially to do your second trip. At this point you're combat hardened, you guys have been fighting this whole time right yeah so almost almost every day not the same intensity as the these two battles we talked about but any day we want to get in a fight we could get in a fight and it could be as large or as small as we wanted just depending on on how far we pushed it you know there's days that we leave the wire man let's just take it easy today guys so we take it easy we wouldn't go where we learned where the enemy was at and then you know if we felt a little ballsy and we go poke the bear that's incredible. Um, and yet again, dude, you, I mean, you should be proud. I mean, you kept people alive. You got people out of there and you got to laugh and nobody died. So yeah. even better, right? Yeah. And you can directly say you impacted that confidently, you know? Yeah, 100%. Uh, those guys weren't, those guys weren't burned up alive and you guys got air on station and you have to roll around with force, dude. Or yeah. Nowadays, Marsoft for the guys yep. that are wondering what force is. But um, yeah, what an incredible story. But it, it's it's funny to me because in those moments, it's not like it was a preconceived thought, right? Like you're just doing what you do. You're just yeah. being a sergeant of Marines in battle. Like, and oh shit, that got serious real quick. Time to react, yeah. right? And which, it's definitely something to be said about that mindset, you know? Which I don't know if funny is the right word, but what's funny is if you read about the Battle of Shawan and you read about um, Gunny Blonder, he got the Navy Cross for action during that Shawan battle. There was another corporal who was nominated for the Medal of Honor. I believe he got the Navy Cross also. But if you read their stories about the battle on their side, um, you know, we didn't know their names. They didn't know our, our names. All we knew that we were all Marines, but they called our MRAP the Miracle MRAP. So that it's, it's kind of a, a touching story that they read their stories and hear them talk about, you know, second battalion Seth Marines golf company with America AMRAP. So that's uh, yeah, pretty, pretty cool. And uh, I appreciate that they appreciate you. And I don't know if those guys still know our names, but they know that there was an AMRAP coming to save their lives. And they knew that the Marines in that AMRAP, you know, had balls of steel and we would do what we had to do. You know, that, cause that's what, that's what Marines do. As you know, yeah. that's what we do. You you put us in a dangerous place, and we're gonna do what we do. Yeah. Well, that was you did. You guys did work on that deployment, and it's a small world, right? Because we we've talked about this offline. Yeah. Our my battalion actually came and replaced his battalion. We got shifted off of going to Iraq to come and relieve you guys for my first deployment because you guys got banged up pretty good for layman's terms. Uh, so it actually expedited our trip. We were headed to Iraq and then we got told, uh, change of plans, boys, you're going to Afghanistan and you're leaving in 30 days. <laughs> we were like, well, fuck yeah, we're in the fight now. We are. So yeah, uh, incredible time. Um, so you, you definitely kept people alive. Like we were talking about before we took a quick break there and, um, 
did reaction, right? Like, that's all I can think is it's just, yet again, something crazy. At this point, you guys are used to it, though, like you said, every day, and you acted. But, and you know, and a lot of people, what they don't understand is like what we're talking about is like the, the cowboy days of Afghanistan when, yeah. depending on who you were with and where you were, there was not really, like you guys went and stirred up hornet's nests and did this. So fights were whatever, but you've experienced more combat in one pump than most men experience in 10 years. Like, honestly. I tell people my longest fight in Iraq was about 40 minutes. My shortest in Afghanistan was four hours. That's insane. That's insane. And that was because the Taliban at the time, they didn't know what we were. You were all both kind of, when I say we, the, the Marines and the Taliban were trying to figure each other out. So, and, man, they, and, got, uh, they, they evolved definitely after you guys left. They changed tactics quite a bit. And this is probably the last thing I should say, but man, those dudes were hard chargers, man. They were hard. They were they were definitely battle hardened guys, to the point where if they got a they, if they got their own fire team, they got a four man. If two of them's armed, the other two are still battle team or they're buddy rushing or or rushing us with with no weapons. So and uh, man, uh, yeah. So I don't know if hats off is is the correct thing to say, but we were fighting for our cause. They were definitely they were fighting at their cause. You know. We believe while we were fighting, they damn sure believed in the reason they were fighting too. And they were just as willing to sacrifice their life, if not more willing than we were. And they so, did. And if they would have got their hands on you, yeah, that would you know, be it. At, at the end of the day, they're, they're 100% our enemy. and uh, But also at the end of the day, it was warrior versus warrior. Warrior mindset versus warrior mindset. And uh, they, they gave us a run for the money. Yeah. No. I, yeah, they certainly did. Uh, and I'm just thinking to all the years and how much those vehicles cost and how quickly they figured out how to blow those up to the yeah. point where, like, shortly after you guys left, we couldn't even use Humvees anymore because they would kill them every time you drove them outside the wire with explosives. Uh, I, so y'all just used the MRAPs? Yeah, so they ended up doing what's called the ISS uh, suspension upgrade to the MRAPs. I didn't want to interrupt okay. you and talk about it, but they changed that. So they put seven-ton suspension underneath oh, the nice. MRAPs which helped oh. that a little bit, but they were still pretty right. rough. And then we got those map V's, the little things that look like crash bandicoot. They were kind of yeah. like a prototype. We started rolling in those, but they actually made it to where you couldn't take a Humvee outside the wire. They transitioned away from that pretty quick yeah. in 2000, so, towards the end of 2009. Um, earlier I mentioned that we had that one MRAP, but we only took it out the wire twice. Once was that Shawan battle. And then once was, man, I never drove being a Sergeant, I always drove vehicle commander because there's other things I have to worry about besides driving. Uh, and I won't go into the story because I don't know how much time you have, but on, on this particular day, I drove the MRAP um, because I was angry over a mission we had to do. I didn't want to do it because it was the same mission three days in a row and I was against it. And so I get mad. I get in the vehicle, plug my iPod in, mineral iPods, yeah. <laughs> plug it in my speakers. And before we get out of our camp, the batteries start going dead. So I stop. I go. I dig through my crap. Couldn't find any batteries. I go to the second vehicle. No batteries. Third vehicle. Fourth. Nobody has any batteries. And so I said, screw it. Let's take the MRAP. And Corporal Carper's like, man, I don't want to take that MRAP out there. It's going to take it forever. I don't want to drive it. Because in the MRAP, you could plug, I could plug my uh, speakers in. 
but then I had my music to listen to. And my music was like my getaway from all the bullshit, you know? And I said, screw it, dude. I'll drive the MRAP. He's like, Roger that. We go do the mission. I'm so pissed off listening to my music, you know? And uh, we get there, complete the mission. Um, we went there to take a Marine Corps major uh, about two hours away to talk to a village about uh, building wells. Well, he wanted, we just happened, he wanted to go three days in a row, which was against everything we've been taught when it's one way in and one way out of these mountains. So we get up there, everything goes fine, we're on the way back. And we were literally jamming out to knocking on heaven doors. Like the rate, their speakers was loud as they could get. And then we weren't on the road. And, you know, on one trip, we'd be on the left side of the road, coming back on the right side of the road with various distances, but we're just kind of shadowing the road. And we had to go through this dry creek bed. And uh, I remember slowing down, the front wheels went into the creek bed, probably a foot drop. And as I gassed it for the back wheels to drop, moment the back wheels drop, we hit ID. And it picked that MRAP up and it threw it about 30 meters or 30 feet. It nosed though, fell over on the side, blew the front axle off, you know, all the, you know, toolboxes and gas tanks and stuff on the side. It twisted the shell, the hole, where the only doors that could be open was the back doors. And, uh, man, I just think if we would have been at Humvee that day, you know, Humvees are built for ground clearance. The blast goes right up the middle versus the MRAP shaped like this when the blast goes out. If we would have been at Humvee that day, the five of us probably would not still be around. Because that blast picked that MRAP up, threw it, and nosed over it. You know, so, what'd you hit? 40, 60? Do you know? Man, I don't know. No. I just know it was a pressure plate. Because yeah. yeah, I got pictures of the pressure plate somewhere. You know, they got the, the board. There was a piece of metal on bottom with like bicycle inner tube folded up and like a saw blade on top. And we just happened to right where he was at. Yeah, we, uh, they, they figured out that I think they were saying 25 pounds of HME could kill a Humvee, like catastrophically yeah. kill it, kill everybody inside of it. But the average size that we were finding were like 40, 60 mm -hmm. and 80, but predominantly yeah. like 40, which would that's why you couldn't take Humvees. I mean, it would yeah. kill everybody inside of it if they hit 40 pounds. And of course, with my luck, uh, that's where I got my Afghan uh, Purple Heart. The only piece of shrapnel to penetrate the shell of that MRAP, of course, stuck in my left leg. So I'm like, of course. The so only not piece of shrapnel. The Silver Star, not during the Bronze Star. Yeah. Getting... Yeah. <laughs> so shrapnel about... from a freaking. So, and that leads us into this. So then you got the Navy and Marine Corps Accommodation Medal. Yeah which is another high prestigious award. Um, tell us about that. I'm not going to read that um, thing, but tell yeah. us about that. So, yeah, I'll make that one short. Um, Non-combat related. Uh, so we were doing a night patrol, and I wanted to go to a village and talk to these guys. We had already arranged this little meeting. And so I don't know what time it was, 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, we roll up. You know, We're driving with the infrared lights and our nods. And as we pull up to the village, um, the way they're, this village, I mean, uh, all of Afghanistan is poor. Nobody's been to Afghanistan. It's all poor people, uh, no running water. Uh, so their well was just circle, just dug into the ground, probably eight foot in, what's that, circumference or uh, from side to side? So not a very big, but it was about 30 foot down through the water, and they had a rope tied to a bucket. In order for them to get water, they lowered a bucket down and they pulled that rope to get and lift that bucket out of the, uh, the well. So for whatever reason, um, when this kid heard the Marines were coming, 
he was all excited. You know, we gave candy and soccer balls and Cokes and chocolate. And uh, so somehow he fell into the well and uh, he falls into the water and that, that water's freezing. And so the dad, so we pull up, I go to dismount and I all see this guy running towards us. And so I came, if I probably would have blinked, I would have shot it because I'm pulling the trigger. It was one o'clock in the morning. This guy's sprinting to our vehicles. And I don't know why I did. Any other time, I think I think I probably would have shot him. I just remember hold just enough pressure on that trigger where if I saw something or he did something stupid, you know, he was he was a dead man. And so he runs up to me and I grab him, you know, kind of I'm holding holding him back like that. Interpreter comes up and this guy is losing his mind. And uh, I didn't understand why at the time. The interpreter tells us, hey, about in, in the village, you know, 78, 5, 80 feet away, his son fell into the well. And so I'm like, man, I've, I've already been walked through the ambush once. I'm not doing it again. So I tell my vehicles, like this guy, like he's, you can see the fear in his eyes. So I'm like, man, maybe he's, maybe he's being honest. And so I'm like, well, I'm not walking my squad into a, another ambush. So I tell all my vehicles, hey, punch out, get dispersion. Make sure you can see me. I got my IR uh, chem light on. If you cannot see my IR chem light, move. Because last thing I want to do is get sucked into this village and be out of sight, you know. So sure enough, the vehicles move. I tell everybody, stay in the vehicle for now. Let me find out what's going on. So, you know, this guy runs back up there. Me and interpreter is doing this little, you know, Air Force shuffle. Yeah. So we, sure enough, we come up to this well. And I shine my flashlight in there. And the kid's bobbing. Like you can see his arm, like he's doing everything he can to stay afloat and he's going under. So every, like when I look at him, he's probably, he probably bobbed twice and then went underwater. So I'm like, I got to do something. So I'm looking around trying to figure out something. Can't figure out what to do. So I finally just said, man, screw it. This is a, I'm not just going to let this kid drown while I stand here. So I'll get on the radio. Hey, give me your dismounts. Come to me. This is legit. Drop my body armor. And at first I thought I could grab a rope and kind of just like, slide down it like, man that rope's really not big enough i don't trust that rope i don't want to my, my fear was that as i was sliding down that rope the rope would break loose and now i'm in a out of control fall like, man from texas i've jumped thousands of times off of rocks out of trees into water i said i hope that water is deep enough but uh, here we go took my body armor off took my cover off um, passed off my rifle and, and pretty much and just Feet first, jumped in this well. The minute I hit that water, I was in almost an instant shock because it was so cold. Really? And uh, so I could feel the current from that, that well, that river that's traveling under the ground, kind of pulling me off this one side. And so I knew that once this kid went under, I didn't know if the water just took him or. And so I'm in the water several minutes. Um, two, three, four, five minutes. I don't know. It's get to the point where now I got to figure out how to get out because my plan on saving this kid's life is, is, is no longer the plan because he's been underwater so long that I know that um, it's, it's not likely he's alive. And so at this point, I'm just hanging on to this side of this w wall with my fingernails, just trying to stay afloat. And so my driver, Corporal Carper, my best friend, what does this fool do? So Ron needs help. My, my buddy down there needs help. So he jumps in with me. So now we're both down there in this freaking well. And um, I said, hey, so our plan was drive a vehicle over and lower the winch down to us. We know how, how fast a winch is, like this freaking 
feet of smell, right? And so uh, while that vehicle's coming up to us, I said, hey, I'm going to try to go into water so I can see if I can feel anything. And so him and I start taking turns going into the water, trying to feel the bottom of this uh, river, underwater riverbed, trying to feel this kid's body. And Corporal Copper has actually found his body first. He comes back up because I found him. So now we start trying to pull him up away from the current. And so we go down together. And we're finally able to grab him and pull him out of that current. And about the time we're coming up with him, now we're trying to keep ourselves afloat and this boy's body afloat just by hanging on to the mud or fingernails. About that time, the winch gets down to us. We put the winch around the boy. We winch him out. And the winch comes back down, and we winch Corporal Carper out and then, and then uh, myself out. And, uh, of course, the boy, had, uh, he, had, he had passed. And I'll, I'll never forget the father saying, inshallah, you know, God willing. And as you know, in that culture, their oldest son is everything. But this, this, was, this was like his third son, so the dad wasn't too concerned about it. You know, inshallah, you know, God willing. A couple of days later, so uh, well, that after that happened, our corpsman looks at us, our lips are turning blue. He's like, hey, we got two options. We load up right now and haul ass back through our fob, or y'all gonna get naked. I'm gonna wrap y'all in this thermal, this blanket. Hey, load up, let's get out of here. <laughs> I'm not spooning with this this Marine, you know, naked. So we get in the vehicles, we haul us back, and then we get treated for uh, early stages of hyperthermia. And then, I don't know, the next day, a couple of days later, that dad came, gave us some intel on some insurgents uh, within a few miles from us. We went and hit that house, and you know, that ended up being a good hit. We got a lot of a lot of uh, ID make materials, RPGs, machine guns, and uh, Afghan arrested a couple guys, and Took them to a, a trip up in the mountains and ended up being a a, a good. Uh, we ended up developing a good relationship with that town because we pulled that kid out of the water, even though he had passed away. That they were still thankful that we they was able to give him a proper burial. Yeah. No. Wow. And then that goes to show also, like you know, uh, we are barbarians, right? I know that's the theme of this show, but like legitimately, you're savages, you're barbarians, you're unruly in combat, but you have a heart. Yeah. you do care and not everybody is the enemy and right. you gotta you know it's crazy to me because i'll tell you what i feel guilty about sometimes is before i ever went to afghanistan for the first time like you'd always get caught up in the rhetoric you know sandman and tally taliban you know all the bullshit yeah. that people say that's inappropriate but it really is and i and i don't want to give any credit because but it is warrior to warrior, life to life with some of those guys. With well, yeah. all of them compared to us, like they will die in a second yeah. for what they believe. And so you got to respect that war mentality, no matter what side of the battlefield they're on. That's it, and it's weird saying that, right? Like it I, is. I don't like I'm not praising them by no means. No, hundred percent. Like, yeah, but like. I got to I respect somebody that's so down for what they believe in that they'll give their life for it. You that know? and and what's what's <laughs> respectable for them is not only are they willing to die for the cause they believe in, but for their their battle buddy beside them. Yeah. You know, so they're 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 doing the same physical action of the combat as we're doing. And at the end of the day, you know, all politics out the door. I'm fighting for this guy. I'm fighting for this guy. I'm fighting for you. And they're doing the same thing. Just on the opposite end. So. Yeah. 
Well, that's incredible, dude. So we'll move on from the military because I've, I've taken, we've spent an hour and 15 minutes talking <clears> about <throat> Afghanistan now. Um, I really wanted to highlight your just, that was all one trip, one trip, folks, uh, one seven month deployment for him. Yeah. All of that, that was about, that one was about 10, 10 months. Yeah. Okay. And but that was that uh, in 10 months. That's an incredible amount of things to experience. <laughs> And, 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 and as you know, man, there's awarded for. Yeah, there's hundreds of stories, but the only ones that get recognized are, are the ones printed on paper. So out of hundreds of battles, it's, it's those those two. And I'm like, man, there was there was much more went on besides those short paragraphs that they write. But uh, I understand why they why they do it. And I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I think I, I appreciate your candor on that. And I appreciate you sharing. But um. Let's get into the fun stuff with this. So let's get into mindset, dude, because this is for our audience, especially like, what do you do when life serves you something unexpected, right? Like, in, and this is important because, yeah, we're not going to be talking about most of our listeners aren't ever going to and hopefully never have to experience combat or be in the I position. I hope they don't. That, yeah, exactly. But that being said, like, your life could take a turn at the snap of a finger. Uh, trauma happen, like tragedy strikes. Um, you lose your job, like hard. Different people's versions of hard are different. And it's hard to even say that after what we just talked about that you've been through. But like hard is different to every individual. Sometimes it's losing your girlfriend. Sometimes it's losing your job. Sometimes it's yeah. your dog. Like I tell people all the time, uh, especially guys who are not been to combat, both military veterans and straight civilians depression is depression no matter where the source is from no matter if it's on combat no matter if it's your childhood trauma no matter if it's from a car wreck you experience as an adult depression depression stress is stress anxiety is anxiety all the all that is it doesn't matter where the source is it affects everybody differently or everybody the same you know it's going to cause it's going to cause you mental emotional physical trauma that uh, it needs to be addressed. You cannot, you cannot deal with it yourself. And I tried for years to deal with it myself because I'm fucking tough, right? I'm tough mentally. I'm tough emotionally. I'm a Marine. I've been through all this shit. I can deal with it myself. You can't. Yeah. So what was that like coming home after all of that? Right. Let's talk to people so, about mindset shit. Yeah. Like, like you, and this is where we get real with people because like, Yes, he survived. Yes, he made it back. Yes, he's got the awards. But there's these things called survivor guilt. There's the things that you don't realize until even sometimes some of the shit, even years later, you don't mm -hmm. even acknowledge like there's the alcohol abuse. There's fuck it. You can't have a regular relationship with people because you don't yeah. see life the same anymore. Um, everything could have you switched on in a second. You're mad or sad and you don't even understand why. I don't know. 100%. Right? So what, what was it like adjusting and, and what would you say so, to people going through, like right now, if somebody's going through a hard time, what would you say to them too? For most important thing I can say is you're not alone. Yeah. Um, I've learned that myself. When I got out of the Marine Corps, I didn't want to get out of the Marine Corps, but I thought it was the right thing to do. I was married at the time. My marriage was uh, rocky to say the least. And so I, I blame the Marine Corps, you know. If I was on employment, I was home training. And a lot of people don't understand, hey, you're gone eight, nine months, you're home a year. 
that year should be spent with your family. Well, as most military members or multi-families know that if you're home a year, you're gone two months of this training, you're home a week. You're gone 10 days of this training, you're home two weeks. You've got a month of this training. So you're still not really home. And so I thought the, the answer to my problems, and uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps, that's really was a start of my problems. And I've often um, called it the front yard firefight because I was in battle at home. Now, it wasn't physical battle. I wasn't engaging anybody. I wasn't fighting, but I was I was I was fighting myself, fighting my emotions, fighting my mentality. Uh, because when I got home and I, I know now through. Uh, finding good mentors through um, self growth, personal growth, through yeah. professional counseling, through reading, through talking that I was completely wrong, but I thought. Nobody understood what I've been through at home. I couldn't talk to anybody at home because how am I going to let them know, hey, I'm suffering? Here I was, first out of the Marine Corps, the sergeant, four combat deployments, a stack of ribbons on my chest. How can I let them know that I'm struggling? I'm hurting every single day. Um, so holding all that in um, took a toll on me. I didn't know at the time. I was depressed. Um, I had anxiety. I had I had every issue that everybody else has, uh, but I was my biggest enemy. I wouldn't accept the fact that I, I did have problems. Ended up leading to me getting divorced. And for the longest time, I blamed her because she's the one that said I quit. And so I was mad as hell, you know. And it took uh, took several years and in, in growth to realize that um, it wasn't all her fault. And it may not be 50-50. It may be. 70 30 or 80 20. Um, and so it took me a lot, it took me a while to get to get over that and for me to understand that. Um, once I realized I had problems, then I had to find a way to fix it. And for me, that was um counseling, that was talking to people who would listen. And just because somebody hasn't been in combat, just because somebody hasn't been wounded, just because somebody hasn't been in the military doesn't mean that they can't listen to you. Doesn't mean that they can't provide you guidance, provide you advice. Yeah, and, over and I the, want to say right now, I'm going to stop you for a second. Like, rewind this and listen to that again, especially if you're one of my dudes that's out there hitting with Marsoc that's been through some shit, don't feel like anybody understands you, or if you're one of my, you know, like one of the guys that served with us at that time, or nobody gets me. If you got a chip on your shoulder, you're only hurting yourself. 100%. There's people out there that care about you. There's people out there that love you. I love you. Yeah, for real. So, man, one of the biggest eye-opening experiences I had, I was talking to a buddy, and, man, I was drunk. And at this point, I, uh, I'd been a cop a couple of years working night shift. On my days off, man, I was, I was drinking at home, uh, drinking too much. I was not drinking because I enjoyed the taste of it. I was drinking to feel nothing. I wanted to numb myself. I wanted to numb my emotions. I wanted to numb my mind. I wanted to stop thinking about the shit that I thought about. Now, I was never suicidal. So that's one, one thing I, I, I'm proud to say, or I don't know proud to say is the right word, but um, I, was ne I never had those thoughts. Now, I may have thought to myself, I understand. I can see why people do this. I can understand why they went in their life. But at the time, man, I, uh, I love my family, my friends too much. At the time, I had a, a daughter. Like I loved other people 
more than myself. And so I told myself that if I have to live every day through the hell I'm living in, I'll do that because I love them. Yeah. And so, but I remember telling my friend, uh, I said, man, I'm on rock bottom. He's in California. He was a Marine. I said, I'm on rock bottom. He laughed. I was like, man, what the fuck is so funny, bro? <laughs> he said, you know the good thing about being on rock bottom? At the time, like I said, I've been drinking. I was drunk. And so the next day I had to call him and, and ask him what he said again, because I remember that. I said, I'm on rock bottom. He laughed and said, good. I said, what's so good about that? He said, that rock bottom provides a good foundation for you to build on. <clears throat> and that in my, in my drunken you know, my drunken mindset, I remember that the next morning I called him. Hey, man, did you tell me you're glad I'm on rock bottom? He said, you're damn right I did. You remember what I said after that? I said that that rock bottom is a good foundation to build on. He said, you're, you're right. He said, quit feeling fucking sorry for yourself. You don't deserve that. He said, you're ruining yourself. You're ruining your life. He said something. You keep going on the road you're going now. Now your life is going to be changed and altered forever. He said, all, you know, in Texas, as a law enforcement officer, it takes one alcohol incident and you can't be a cop again for 10 years. And then once those 10 years are up, what's the chances of an agent taking a risk and hiring you to get back, you know? And so uh, that was an eye-opening experience. And that's when I was like, I probably need some help. And about that same time, I met my wife now, who I often credit for saving my life. And I'm, I'm, I got I to tell people not save my life because I was going to harm myself. But she stopped me from going down. She stopped me from spiraling out of control. When I met her on my days off, I was drinking, I was partying. When I met her, I had a jacked up truck, a Corvette, hardly had the typical Marine just living day to day and thrill by thrill, you know. Yeah. And uh, she, uh, th the moment I saw her, I told all my all my friends I was going to marry her. I didn't even know her name. Didn't even know her name. I said I'm gonna marry that girl. And so I got to know her and then uh, I knew instantly that she was something special. And uh, I was going to do whatever I had to do to spend the rest of my life with her. And she has been um, my saving grace, man. She is, uh, without me trying to get emotional, she has not forced me to be a better man. Um, she didn't force me to change. Um, she saw the man that I deserve to be. And in return, my goal now is to be the husband that she deserves, to be the father that my children deserve, to be the son my parents deserve, to be the friend that my friends deserve. And so it, um, she. And the survivor that your yeah. men deserve. Yeah. Of course, you know, she's uh, she's never been in combat, never been in battle. Had, I don't think she's ever been in the fist fight, but she listened. And she didn't just listen because she had to. She listened because she wanted to. She wanted to understand. She wanted to help me. And as you know, you can tell the difference when somebody's listening to you because they have to. Like I went to several counselors where they were listening to me because they're getting paid to. And then once I found one that listened, who truly wanted the help, game changer. But she was like that. I could tell that she that she saw something in me at that at that immediate time that. I didn't think it existed anymore. I thought that that got left in Afghanistan. I thought that good man got left in combat, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, she, uh, that's one thing I could say, find somebody that 
will love you for the man you are or for the woman you are. Yeah. So let, let's back up for a second because I want to get into navigating. I don't even know how to present it. Like I want to get into to taking action, essentially, right? Because there's a lot of people that listen to this show that are in a spot in their life where it's not nearly as dramatic or hard, but that's part of the reason I want to drive this home. But like to where maybe their relationships are falling apart. Maybe their career is shit. Really what I'm saying is their mindset is shit. Okay. There's going to be people that are listening to this that are, they're 10 years into a career. They don't like what they do. They're that was, well, five years in. They're five years into a career, don't like what they do, whatever it is, right? They're, they're at this point in their life where they, like, what the hell do I do? But they're doing the him and in the hawn. And I want to, this is a big gap here, but work with me. I, I want to yeah. take this to the moments of heroism that you expressed, because I want to make something clear to our audience. When, in all of these stories that Will just shared with you on his Silver Star, on his Bronze Star, on his Circom, uh, and the shit that you don't hear about, the other things that he didn't get awards for, that he, without a doubt, experienced other combat and other men around him that did things like this that aren't celebrated. But what the thing that they did is they didn't him haw, they took action. And the one thing that it was not a premeditated thing. When you're in that situation and the guy trying to get to you gets shot and you watch the life roll out of his eyes and he's now dead. And you're in your case, you're the senior man in the nine people of the nine people on the field and everybody you're looking at guys and they're looking at you like, holy fuck, we're going to die. Yeah. That you didn't say that, but that's what they're looking at you. Like, like, dude, do something. There's no, there's no way out of that. What do we do? They're looking to you like this is your I'm going to charge the mound and kill everybody inside of that machine gun nest or I'm going to drive the vehicle. Get over there now. Those guys are burning. Get over there. Get the MRAP. Over. That's not something that when this all kicked off, you had put together this plan and like you have this grand idea of how it's going to look like that's a. The building that's Hollywood move. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? uh I mean, it, it can't be rehearsed and it can't be planned. It's just, uh, it's literally fight or flight. Yeah. Nothing I did or have ever done was for the, for courage or for to say I was brave or to say I was, you know, in any other fancy titles that, that people that people claim when they get these awards, man. It was strictly to get my brothers off the battlefield and, and, yeah. and do whatever whatever that took. But I think, dude, I think, and this is where it's like, I, I don't, I'm not at all trying to take away from the, the confluence of the achievements because, dude, mass respect, you know, I don't need to cover that. You get it. But like, people need to understand that that same mindset is every day. Like every day you're presented, maybe not with the opportunity that's going to take your life or cost somebody else their life around you. But every day that you're not living in your purpose, you are wasting your life. Every day that you're exaggerating or you're not giving the best that you can to your wife or for your kids. And I, dude, I'm guilty of this too. Anytime that you're not executing at the fullest extent that you can be for your family, for your dreams, you're letting the one person 
in here that truly matters down to you. Yeah. And it comes down to the smallest of things. My wife, if she's with me, she don't touch the door. That small little act, that's my job. I'm open that car door. I'm open that restaurant door. Uh, it's it's all this, these small things that you're supposed to do as a man, as a husband, as an alpha male, as a provider that I think that, that uh, we get, we forget um, our roots. We get complacent. And what does complacency do? Complacency yeah, kills. Gets killed. Yeah. yeah. And I don't necessarily, yeah. like, that may not, you know, back here outside of combat mean that, that you're literally going to die, but complacency kills. Uh, it's going to kill your relationship. It's going to kill your marriage. It's going to kill your manhood. Be a man. Do the things that men are supposed to do. Yeah. Don't get complacent. Don't sit on the damn couch all day. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Get outside. Get under the sun. Feel the grass on your freaking feet. You know, get some natural sunlight. Cause it's good for your body, man. Yeah. And honestly, dude, remember that that grass you walk, there's blood spilled so that you could walk on. Mm -hmm. Remember that. Remember As you that, see, that every moment you cower, you're wasting an opportunity yeah. literally to become like what you are on this earth to be. And I really want people to understand this. And I, and I know this is a big draft from fighting and combat to taking action in your life, but it's really not, Will. It's the same decision every mm -hmm. day that when you're faced with adversity, regardless of and my point here, and, and I want people to understand and hear it from a guy that actually can say that he's done it. I, I'm not a hero. I'm just another dude that pounded sand. But to go from, it, it's literally a switch in your life that when something isn't right, you execute and you execute now. You don't mm -hmm. wait. You don't hem and haw. You, you don't kick it back and forth. If something is off in your life, you can change that today. Whether you believe it or not, whether you know it or not, it's the action. And when you charge that hill, okay, you even said it. I didn't care if it killed me. In fact, I wasn't sure that it wouldn't. But I knew that I'm literally looking at my men that are looking at me like we are going to die. What do we do? And the action was taken. Yeah. And you did what you, at that point, you came up with something and you did it. And so let me ask you this, man, because we're not really in the FAQ part of this, but I just want I want you to coach our audience here on mindset. Like how can somebody like, what would you say to somebody that needs to like take act? You know what I'm saying here? Like where I'm trying to go with this, like, like you need to put the gear and drive and go like life is such a precious thing, dude. So man, um, uh, we talk about me being a law enforcement. I was a full-time law enforcement officer from 2012 to 2021. 2021, I transitioned to a sales position, which is completely the opposite of, of uh, military and being a law enforcement officer. And but, man, I've been to so many calls where the least expecting person did something courageous at the time that they were needed to maybe not stop a crime or maybe not prevent a crime or to. I'm not saying like if you see. If you're in a gas station, it's getting robbed. I'm not saying put yourself in danger, sure. But yeah. uh, courage comes in many forms. Cur you know, I've seen elderly ladies provide such descriptors of suspects. Their cars. Hey, it was a blue car. It had a dent on the front right quarter panel. The last two of the license plate was 
boy Frank. Uh, so courage does not always mean coming face to face, uh, putting your hands up, fighting. Uh, there's many forms of courage, and uh, it just blows my mind sometimes where you go to a scene and you see this big manly veteran looking dude wearing a grunt style t-shirt and his beard and all right, that dude's gonna have good information. That dude probably did something, nothing. And it's a 58 year old grandmother buying baby formula for her neighbor's kids who gives you the, the best amount of information kind of find out that she was the most courageous one here because she's the one that knew something was, was wrong. Didn't necessarily put herself in danger, but watch gathered much detail as she could, retain that information, an hour and a half later is able to articulate that on a piece of paper leading to the rest of these suspects. So I don't want people to think that being courageous or being brave necessarily means putting yourself in danger because that's not what it means. Uh, it, it's, it's a mindset, not a physical placement. You can be brave um, in many different forms in any situation. In this case, I would argue in today's society, dude, I'd even argue that bravery could be sharing what you find to be true in, yeah. a, in a society where they want you to be muzzled like a dog. Yeah. Speaking truth is brave, you know, regardless mm -hmm. of to, to a point, which is weird to say because of just. Yeah, we're not cut from the same cloth as what the world has taken now, dude. I almost I we, we just joked about Marines on TikTok as shit where. We were like just happy to go MWR and like yeah talk talk to our people back home on MySpace or something every now and then or something. MySpace, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or how about sitting on top of a Humvee, extending the freaking antenna on the sat phone? Yeah, man. Back in the day, that one sat phone call a month, whatever, man. That's all I needed to reset. Just get back out there. Yeah, that this a uh, just a different time. Um, so you got out you you had to go to work on yourself yeah and you but the key ingredient here is action yeah from everything this is what i want people to understand from from your silver star to your bronze star to the circon to the other things that you experience in combat to be in your 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 career in law enforcement which we haven't really touched on because it's it's not super important to me i want to i want to really share more about your mindset and taking action. Yeah. Like i look action, at law enforcement action, action yeah law enforcement is my job and it, it, not necessarily something we have to harp on because it, it was a job it's what paid my bills at the time yeah but it's part of being a blue collar barbarian dude you know yeah. like full transparency it is um so i want to get into some some of the the taking the risk and so you started a company mm -hmm. okay several actually that we haven't talked too much about but yeah 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 but let, let's walk through that because you're trying to find your way in life and that's what i want people to understand is Failure is feedback and like you could be afraid of doing something, but it's just repetitive action until you find yeah. your way. So you man, I, yep. I'm real big on setting goals yep. and reaching those goals and seeking whatever reward is at the end of those goals. So early on in my law enforcement career, I was still not mentally or emotionally healthy. I faked it. Uh, during the day when, when everybody was around and all eyes on me, I appeared to be A-OK -okay by myself, like a big data dump, you know, dopamine dump. I've been faking it all this time. What started all this, my recovery process is, and this is going to lead up to the business. 
was classic truck. There's been, there was a 1940 truck that's been in my family since new. It had been taken apart and abandoned in the field since the 70s. And uh, I pulled that truck out the field and I started a restoration project on that truck. Um, I literally had never worked on anything except dirt bikes in my life. I had no idea what I was doing. I stripped every single nut and bolt off this thing. Bought a sandblaster air compressor, a sandblaster frame, I painted the frame, put it all back together. And over those three years, I didn't realize, realize that at the time, but while I was restoring that truck, I was restoring myself. Seeing something go from this unwanted, scrappy, rusty, denty, shitty truck sitting alone to a truck that's now running, driving, turning heads and waving. Everybody's waving at me. Everyone take pictures of it. That's the same process I feel like I went through. I was that unwanted sitting in the field alone individual mentally and emotionally and through a restoration process that takes time takes money takes love takes dedication the same effort i put into this truck i put into myself on the side and then when it was all said done i realized that so that's i started buying classic trucks because it was therapeutic for me and i realized that while i work on this truck I wasn't drinking. Mm. While I was buying parts for this truck, I wasn't buying alcohol. So I I used this restoration of this truck in replace of feeling sorry for myself, in replace of staying in my, my apartment all weekend long. I had to get the truck running now. It now sparked my interest. And now I've taken it to a crazy level. Uh, thank God I got a great wife. Along with that, what else do most Marines and Texans like doing shooting rifles. Um, God bless Texas. Yeah. Out of my four deployments, I served two of those deployments with a Scott Sniper platoon. And so I was, I've always been pretty good at marksmanship. Um, that really got honed in in the Marine Corps. And I carried that outside of the Marine Corps with me. Um, with my 10 years of law enforcement, six of that was spent on the SWAT team as a marksman. But what I started doing with this business is people started paying me. It started about my buddies. I man, let's go, let's go side on my rifle Saturday. Sweet, let's go. And I got caught up at work. I can't. He told me I can't go. I said that's fine. Give me your rifle. I'll go side it in. We side it in. He gave me a hundred bucks. He said, hey, I got a couple more. We side in. We side those in too. I give you another hundred bucks. Roger that. I went right back to the range. Made two hundred bucks that day in a matter of a couple hours. Then it went to, can you side my brother's rifle in? Can you side my neighbor's rifle in? And so next thing I know, it I'm making. Two, three hundred bucks every weekend sighting in rifles. And uh, and that led into, hey, can you help me out? Can can you teach me some basics? I'll pay three hundred dollars for four hours. Roger that. Now I got more money for my restoration project. So, and next thing I know it, it turned into me doing a a six, eight hour course. And then I met a guy uh, who's now my business partner. He was a cop in Tennessee. And at the time, he was one of the, the top, probably top 100 professional marksmen across the country on a competitive level. And I've learned that there's precision shooters and tactical shooters. He is definitely a precision shooter. I'm a tactical shooter. And when I explain that to people, my goal is to put as many rounds into you before you put one round into me. That's a tactical shooter. Precision shooter, he wants to put 30 rounds in the size of your thumbnail. Now, you know, so anyway, I met him 
to the grace of God, a coincidence, how do you want to look at it? We start talking back and forth. We were sitting there one day at this large ranch. We had just been shooting all day. And I said, man, we just started a shooting company. I was like, between my skills and your skills, maybe some people would, would, would be interested in. And he said, you know what? I'll do that with you. And that, that following week, I was set to go to the uh, FBI and Houston PD, their SWAT, I mean, their sniper school. I said, well, let me get this uh, week-long sniper school out the way. When I get back, let's, let's talk about this. And if we're serious, let, let's do it. So did that, did that two-week school, however long it was, came back, and uh, him and I started talking back and forth on the phone because he lives in Tennessee. And Man, we uh we came up with the name Right Wing Precision. I don't know if you can see it on the shirt right there. And then that was in 2019, and now we're hosting. It started with doing just day courses. He'd come down from Tennessee. We spent a couple of days on here. We would host eight-hour courses at a local ranch, and we'd pay the ranch to use their um, use their facilities, and they'd cook hamburgers for us, and it turned into a two-day, one-night course. And now we're at probably one of the, the nicest ranches in Texas called the Ox Ranch. Um, and it's now evolved into a three-day, two-night course, all-inclusive, very nice lodging, um, chef-prepared meals. There's a restaurant on the, on the ranch. And so it's really evolved from just sighting in rifles, just doing something I love to do to get my mind off all the problems I had, to opinion that that's pretty successful today and uh man some of the clients we have um some of our top country music artists are our clients um some of the former presidential family is is our clients and uh, if you look on our website you can see pictures of us with them um, without making this go political so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna name their names but man uh, we really turned this into something great and it all started with me wanting help one that fixed myself and doing anything and everything I could not to go buy that bottle, not to go buy that six pack to use my time and money towards something else to restore an old truck. And like I said earlier, through that process, I started restoring myself. Yeah. And that's incredible, dude. So it's funny because you want to talk about how one action can change the world and it's it's funny god's giving you i believe in god so i just 100 universe 100%. but god god's giving you the opportunity not only to take one action to save a life or save lives but now also you've been gifted the opportunity to take action and change lives through like it's amazing to me that a person could start something like with such like little like uh oh, you know i'm not sure what i want to do with this or and see it blossom into something yeah. world class, world class, like hands down world class. Uh, and and our course, one hundred percent, is a is a five star luxury course. Between we shoot from one hundred yards out to a mile, uh, we had a hundred percent success rate on every client successfully shooting our targets at a mile. Uh, we have our standard logo, and then we have a logo seventeen sixty one thousand seven hundred sixty yards is the mile. So we have a 1760 club logo. You get a certificate, you get shirts, man. It's and between what we offer and what the Ox Ranch offers, man, it's 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 top of the line. And it's really a beautiful thing. 
that, that, that watch it grow and see how happy our clients are. Oh, when our course is a basic fundamental course. We've talked about advanced courses, but more people, I've learned there's more people out there that, that haven't shot over two, 300 yards that get so much thrill from coming out there, seeing them shoot 500 yards, 1,000 yards, 1,200 yards, and then a mile. And that's a hell of an achievement for anybody. And it's a really rewarding, feel-good experience to see the excitement of a dad and his son, a mother and daughter, a husband and wife, share that moment together. And, man, it's a, it's a great feeling, man. Yeah. That's incredible. And, uh, I'm going to have to come out and experience that sometime. Dude, you are more than welcome to come out there. We'll, we'll coordinate it for sure. Yeah, that'd be cool. Like maybe bring my son. We could. Yeah. And to out. think that it all started from me realizing, Max, like somebody's rifling to make a hundred bucks, and I could take that money and put it toward this truck. Where that was a complete 180 for me, because prior to that, I was taking whatever money I had. I'm gonna buy this bottle. I'm gonna buy that six pack. I'm gonna go out to this bar. I'm gonna go to that bar, and it just I got tired of feeling like shit. So I was like, man, I got to do something. I'm not going to drink this weekend. I'm going to work on this truck. Any extra money I have is going toward this truck. So. Oh, yeah. And you did. And it, like I said, it goes back to what I was just saying. It, it's incredible because one action has built this. Literally yeah. taking action. So if people, what I'm saying, audience, please listen to me. Don't hesitate. Just start acting, start taking actions towards figuring out what it is that's stumbling you or that's tripping you up and, and realize the greatness that is seriously inside of you. If one, you can let go of your past, you got to forgive yourself, like for real, you got to forgive whatever it is you're holding on to and you got to just move forward and you got to understand is what, who you were, what you were is not what will, what you will be or who you're supposed yeah. to be. You're supposed to evolve. You're supposed to get better. You're supposed to experience failure. You're supposed to take that as feedback and make yourself into something more. You're supposed to let God use you to do miraculous and great things. Not to go 100%. down a religious tangent, but you are supposed and, to. And you're not going anywhere without taking a step. No. If you just it. stand there, you're going to get stagnant. Just like water. Yes. No, water standing still is going to become stagnant. What is most of our body made out of? Water. If you sit your ass on that couch and feel bad for yourself, you're going to become stagnant. You have to move forward. Find something that catches your interest and do it. Get out, like, like I said earlier, get out of the house. Sitting inside that, that box, feeling depressed for yourself and drinking is the worst thing you could do. Put your phone down. Yeah. Put your phone down or when you're on it, use it. I mean, I'm a terrible example. I like being on the phone. I think social media yeah. is kind of cool. It actually pisses me off more than anything, but it has got a, it's got its place. But put your phone down and just go, right? Like go experience life, folks. Even, even if it's just a, hey, I'm going to walk a mile and a half in my local state park. Sure. Move. Take your phone with you in case something happens. But put on airplane yeah. mode or put your earbuds in, play some music, and walk a mile and a half. Yeah. Just, just it's crazy. get that, you were get that disconnect. Earlier. You were talking. We need that disconnect. Oh, 
dude, so much. And I didn't mean to cut you off. I apologize there. But uh, we were talking earlier. You were talking about like blaring music. I remember like plugging speakerphone like into shit and just trying to get music in the iPod. Uh, yeah. Wow, what a trip down memory lane to think where we are now. Yeah. Like that this is an it, iPod essentially. My iPod only, it, it was a small one. It only hold like 180 songs. So I'd have to pick the songs I didn't want, re- remove them and download some more songs. You know, it was a pain in the ass back then. Yeah. No I, sure. I had the little small iPod. But it's it's crazy to think like I went from like let the Rob Zombie and all that stuff to like I listen to podcasts when I'm working out now. Yeah. I listen to like Real AF yeah. with Andy Frisella or and yeah. stuff like that while I'm working out. I'd almost rather hear that than yeah music because I'm just constantly trying to feed my brain hundred percent to to evolve. In my in my job now, I drive a lot. I do thirty six, thirty eight hundred miles a month. I bought my truck will be two years old in February and I've got uh, like 78, 79,000 miles on it. And I used to just listen to music. You know, that was my go-to, but now I'm all about growth. I'm listening to some sort of podcast or some sort of training on YouTube or something that's just not going to just flood my mind with, with tunes. Like you're not going to learn nothing from a tune. You're not going to better yourself by listening to music. Now I love music. Absolutely love sure. music, but I get, I love a good podcast or good, uh, YouTube video on training or, or bettering yourself or building yourself and better mindset and all that stuff. Yeah. And it's all about evolving, right? Becoming the best version and variant yeah. of yourself and most providing, but listen, out of respect for your time, cause I know it's getting late there and uh, you got a wife and kids. Let's get to, I would like to ask you a few questions before we wrap yeah. up the show. Um, because I think it's, it's safe to say that we've, <laughs> we've established that, you have a barbarian mindset. So I'll be really excited to see how you, how you answer some of, some of these questions. All right. Pulling up your outline. Sorry. I was still on the bronze star citation. still gives me goosebumps to read, uh, to think about that, but dude, I got to ask you the staple question. Okay. And this is the one you're going to be ready for. Cause I ask everybody. Well, like, but, but I, I want to know hear it. from, I want to know from you. I want to know from you. And you've lived a life, so I actually I'm really excited to hear how you answer this. What is a blue collar barbarian to you? So I knew you were gonna ask that. Yeah. And my plan was to break it down into two parts. Blue collar barbarian. Yeah. I don't like being ambushed, clearly. I like being repaired. And so today I told myself or I asked myself, what is a blue collar barbarian? So I asked, well, I know what blue collar is. And I started thinking, what is a what does a barbarian mean? Like, what's the difference of barbarian? And I told myself, let me see what Google says barbarian is. Typed out barbarian. And before I hit that search button, I said, I don't want to know what Google says. Because I want to tell him the first thing that came to mind when I, when I heard that. And so I'm still going to break it down to two pieces. Blue collar. That man or woman who gets up every day, works 40 hours, 50 hours, 80 hours, 120 hours a week. However many hours they have to work to bring enough home to provide for their family. End of story. I don't care. If you can do it in 20 hours, 120 hours, you're getting your ass out there and you're being a provider, regardless of if you're you're male or female. Barbarian. Uh, A couple of different things. So I look at barbarian as a hard alpha male alpha female who 
just not going to let anything get in their way, not let anything harm their family, hurt their family. There's nothing's going to stop them from being a provider. So when I think of blue collar barbarian, I think of that motherfucker is going to do anything he can for his family because of his or her sole purpose of being a provider of their household. And so barbarian is essentially savage. Savage, yeah. Another, it's, a, it's an adjective of savage. Um, like not, a, not part of a common group, right? Yep, yep. It's an unruly, yep. aggressive um, yep. approach. It's that, I mean, by definition, but uh, I love what you said there. I would agree with that. Yeah, like it, it's to me when I, and I'm not going to give everybody my definition because this is about yours, but when when we're talking about barbarians, there's this is not the guy that just, shows up clocks in clocks out this is the monster that like you said you can't be stopped won't be stopped won't take no for an answer is like listen we're humans there's going to be days that we win and then there's going to be days that we lose but that barbarian every day is going to show up dragging his knuckles against the ground you know about our knuckle dragger brothers dude that's it drag his knuckles against the ground but you can always count on that guy He's going to be there. He's going to be there at the start. He's going to be there at the end. At the, very much so. Moving right along, bro. Um, I'm going to skip the how can someone be brave part because I think we covered that pretty yeah. good. It's literally just take action. Would you agree with that? Yep. And and you covered that earlier, ironically. But um, how can someone excel in law enforcement? I want to talk about that. Yeah. The biggest thing I saw in the almost decade out of the cop, the biggest thing I learned and the biggest thing I would teach. Or in the military. Let me two-part that for you. Oh, and okay. also in the military because we okay. talk more so, about the military. I'll start on law enforcement is you got to treat everybody <laughs> equally. I don't care what race, ethnicity, gender, religion, wealth, education they have. Um, if somebody is having an interaction with a law enforcement officer, they are having probably one of the worst days of their life. Either they're a victim of an incident, they're a suspect of an incident, regardless if that's criminal, civil, speeding ticket, uh, sexual assault, murder. If you're dealing face-to-face -face with a law enforcement officer, you're probably not in the best situation that you could be in. So you got to treat everybody equally. You got to treat everybody fairly uh, because you're at the end of the day you're just doing your job and, and you're there to help people out you're not there to judge anybody you're not there to uh, demoralize anybody you're not there to try to belittle or bully anybody you're literally there to help somebody out get both sides of the story if or get it as many sides of the story there is uh, and uh, determine if there's a crime to be made determine if this person's a victim determine if that person's a suspect or if you can't put all that together yourself you got to take that report you send it up to somebody who's going to make more money than you and let them handle it. But you have to treat everybody equally. Um, you can't go out there with a cold shoulder or a you strong, can't go out there strong arm everybody because they're a different race or they're a different uh, level of wealth or a different level of education. But that's going to get you nowhere. That's going to red flag you as a bad cop and it's going to cause you problems. But most of the time, those problem children in law enforcement, same thing in the military, they'll weed themselves out on their own. Yeah. Awesome. So let's let's since we spent more time talking about the military than we did your law enforcement career. And what I'd like to do is I'm going to have you come back on and we'll do another show and talk 
more in depth on transition because I think that there's a lot of value in that. Um, and this went a little bit longer than I anticipated on the award, but I think it's been a great conversation. Yeah. So we'll just two two part this and do it again because okay. that's just how it's going to work. And I like talking to you, so it's yeah. an excuse to talk to you. But so for what about the guys that are in the military, right? The, you, you, maybe you realize you made a commitment, you weren't ready for it, you're there, like it or not, <laughs> you're there. Uh, what would you say to them? Like, how can they yeah. excel in the military? So regardless, if uh, if you sign up for two years or six years or however long you sign up for, now we all know that there's no successful way to end your contract unless you serve your time and you leave under honorable conditions. Nobody wants to leave under dishonorable conditions because um, that is going to drag on you for the rest of your adult life. So first of all, you got to serve your time. You made that commitment, now honor that commitment. Second of all, the, the military is very clear on your goals to get to the next level. Uh, in the Marine Corps, six months from private to PFC with cert continuing education. Nine months from PFC to Lance Corporal, we're certain continuing education and requirements for every rank. Um, there, there's certain requirements that you have to do. Know those requirements, complete those requirements, and advance as far and as fast as you can during your time. Um, one that's going to set you to be a good leader. One that's going to make you happy because with promotion comes more money. With promotion comes more responsibility. With responsibility comes more maturity. And so if you set the bare minimum, and don't choose to do any of your education, don't choose to do any of your MCIs or whatever they call them these days, then you're not going to you're not going to transition from that 18-year-old child who joined the military to that 24, 25, 28-year-old man or adult when you get out. Take advantage of what the military offers, take advantage of those learning experiences, learn to be a leader, grow. And that way, when you do leave the military, you are a step ahead of your peers. Because if you leave the military as a 23-year-old brat punk, then you're not setting yourself up for success when you get out. Use the military to develop yourself into a leader that when you get out, you're 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 a step ahead of everybody, every other 24-year-old, every other 30-year-old. Um, yeah. And the military is a great example of the military teaches that leadership and gives you those traits. And they're, they're very well defined. What's I was saying? Uh, JJ did tie buckle. Learn that. Learn that and apply it daily. And and yeah. my first, I probably didn't take advantage of everything that the Marine Corps offered until I got out. And I was like, oh, man, I probably could have done something a little bit different. I probably could have molded myself into something a little bit better besides just being a freaking gun toter. So that's what I learned getting out. Yeah, I, I didn't. It's weird. It's weird doing with that because I like I feel so many different ways. Because especially where you see, you just know the cloth we came from. Like yeah. it was super hard to get promoted when we were yeah in the time frame we're talking about. Uh, right. We had a lot more shitty staff NCOs that were like dorks in high school or something yeah. that got power uh, because of quick advancement. And then you know I'll digress, but like I think about that sometimes, but. You know what I'm most ashamed of is that it's not even a shame. The thing I wish I would have done different is I wouldn't have been that senior that just carried on the dumb shit that my seniors. Hundred percent, bro. 
I got so I, many I stories wish, that, yeah. I wish I wasn't an asshole. I mean, I, we got to do what you got to do to boost, yeah. but like, I wish I didn't let that, like, I let the military jade me to even, even though I only did four, like, dude, when you're 19 years old and you're going into combat, like I, I spent 2009, 2010 and 2011 in Afghanistan and then got out in 2012. Right. So like, and I'm not so badass. I'm just another dude, but like when you live your life at that pace and three, four was in 29 palms as well. So what people don't understand is when you're home, you're not really home. You're yeah. in the field or you're drinking and partying because you're going to be gone again in the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. And I was really mad at, like I got meritorious promotions taken from me over dumb shit. Like I just experienced yeah. a lot of dumb shit happen to me. And I let that be a chip on my shoulder and it showed, especially mm -hmm. after I got out and, and with maturity. Now I can say this, I couldn't say this until Same. recently. Right. In reflection, but like, I, that's the one thing, dude, I, I wish I would have tried. And I always had it in my mind. I was going to be a force recon guy. Like since I was a little kid, I never was like a big military kid, but when I would think I was motherfucking Jones, right? Like, yeah. I know that's not my last name. I just, in my mind, I was that big dark chocolate fucking hard hitting special forces. dude. That's it. I had an opportunity where I could have went with like, I don't even know what they call it anymore. Hit company or whatnot. I, I was a motor T guy, but with three, four, nobody's, you know how that goes. Yeah. Not just motor. But so I got an opportunity that I could have went to some fast company or something. And it's now, I don't even know what they call it now. Cause I've been out so long, but essentially I would have been, I could have had an opportunity to go and try out to do shit with Marsoc or whatnot. And I was so jaded on like, I can make it without the military that I didn't push myself to see. Yeah. And, and it's easy to do, man. With, yeah. And I don't live with regret. Like, Oh, I'm a, like, it is what it is. Like, I'm not that guy. I'm not a Raider. I didn't, I didn't do it. Um, I never will be that. That's fine. I, my friends, some of my close friends are, and I'm fucking proud of them and I'm stoked for them, especially it's crazy to think they came up after me and now they've been in 12 years and that's part of what they've done yeah. 14 years now or whatever. But like, it's weird. Cause it's like, outside of that, it's like, I wish I would have tried like shot for the moon pushed myself beyond what I knew because I had the discipline back then that I could have mm -hmm. done whatever the hell I wanted. And I wish I wanted to have a chip. I wish I would have yeah. been a cool guy, you know? Yeah. I just didn't take advantage of that. But moving right along, and then we'll close the show out. And I, I really want to hear what you got to say about this, dude. Uh, and this one's going to be cool. But you, as much as you've been through, what's your biggest fear in life? <clears throat> I thought about this one a lot and trying to nail that down, man. That's a tough one, yeah. but I, I kept going back. I kept going back to the same answer and it's ah, man, not being the man that, that I could have been. I don't ever want to be 75 years old saying, what if I would have, I'm 40 now, yeah. 40 years old. Why did I make that decision? Why was I scared to make that decision? What was holding me back? from being a better man, being a better human being. So I guess my biggest fear is not living up to the potential that I feel like I deserve. And not because I was in the military, not because of anything that I've been awarded, but we all deserve to be the best version of ourselves. And I try to live every day 
that if I was to die tomorrow, if I'm laying there taking my last breath, I want to be able to say, I did everything I could to be the best version of myself. So, uh, short answer, my biggest fear in life is not being what I deserve to be. No, that's powerful. I, I would, as you were saying that, like, I think what terrifies me the most is, is never living to my potential. Yeah. Like, as you were saying that, I was just thinking about that. Cause I've never really chewed on that, but like, it'd be failing my kids. Right. And yeah. not living to understand fully what yeah. my potential and what God wanted. Like, what am I here to do? Yeah. I mean, you can't think of it, you know, today 12 in Texas is nine twenty. What would you do different if the Lord came down and said, hey, on January 13th at 1300 hours Central Standard Time, you're going to take your last breath? Or what they say, hey, tomorrow morning at 0920, 12 hours from right now, you're going to take your last breath. What are you going to do for the next 12 hours? Love. Yeah. And so you get, that's how you have to look at life because you never know when your last breath can be taken. I'm going to do a lot of forgiving and I'm going to yeah. do a lot of love and a lot of repenting because the and truth a lot is of prayer. Yeah. yeah. I'm broken. Yeah. No different than anybody. And else, that's, I'm broken. That's one thing that opened my eyes up being a law enforcement officer for those 10 years is, is going to scenes where people going to work, they get T-boned, they get in a wreck, uh, accidents happen at work. They're on the jog, a tree limb falls and kills them while they're on the jog in their neighborhood. Like you never know when your last breath is. And so that man, I, I try to live every day. Everybody I talk to, um, before I got the phone, hey man, have a good day. Love you. Yeah. Hey man, I miss you. How are you doing? I love, I'm here for you. Every phone call, and I love you. Be safe because you never know. So I want to make sure that I've lived to my fullest potential. That's incredible. That's incredible perspective. Well, well, we just said, like I said, for our audience's sake and for our sake, it's late. Uh, we'll, we'll come back on and touch more, tell more of your story in different parts and get into business stuff and yeah. classic trucks. Um, yes, but this is the part of the show where I got to ask for your closing thoughts. And what I ask, um, you know, do you have any book suggestions? You talked about working on yourself or quotes, books or quotes or both that, yeah. that you'd leave our audience with. So I recommend everybody. Uh, most of the people that I've dealt with who are depressed. A lot of the depression and marital problems, relationship problems, personal problems come is one evolved around alcohol. Yep. And and don't get me wrong, I, I love a, a drink just as much as the next guy, but I haven't been shit faced since August 2016. I could buy a six pack and I'll drink one beer a week, two beers a week. So, so don't drink to numb yourself. Um, but far as the books are related, um, finances is a big issue. A lot of people get depressed over finances. They can't pay their bills. Uh, their wife's, you know, the wife or their spouse is just bitching at them because they're blowing all their money. So get your finances in order. There's there's two books that I re recommend everybody reading: Richest Man in Babylon and Rich Dad Poor Dad. Read those two books. Live by those two books. Um, listen to what they take in those two books and apply it to your daily life. Uh, you may not see such a big change the first few weeks, months, but um, after a year of you saving just 10% of your every paycheck, you save 10%, you do that for a year, you do it for two years, five years, um, you're going to get yourself out of that financial burden you're in. Um, stop living, stop living by your credit cards, pay those credit cards off and, and, and get past that. If, if you're, the more financial freedom you have, 
the less stress that you're going to have. And I've learned that myself. I'm speaking through, uh, through my own personal uh, struggles. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. No, uh, I've read rich dad, poor dad. I've read a couple of his books. Uh, I haven't done the application part of it yet. I'm still kind of in the trying to figure out how to switch quadrants or like what that looks like I probably just need to read it again and like yeah. really put some time into it. But the richest man in Babylon is actually on my list. Dude, um, that, dude, that one there is what really changed my, my, my viewpoint on uh, finances. Is it? Yeah, yeah. I'll definitely add that. I got a book suggestion for you. Um, and I, just because I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, it's called chase the lion. Chase the lion. Okay. I'm gonna write that down. Yeah. Chase the lion. Don't bother. I'll send it to you. Okay. Um, Got my, I'll, just, yeah. I'll just send it to you. Yep. It's got a faith. It's a faith element to it, but it's about chasing dreams and how you have these wild ambitions in you for a reason. And a perp- I just, it really spoke to me this year when I yeah. read it. And so, yeah, I, I would like to, I'll send that to you. I got a Please. special care package for you anyway. Appreciate it, brother. Um, yeah. Well, well, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on the blue car barbarians podcast. And thank you for sharing with us uh, for our listeners uh, please check out Right Wing Precision. You can find him on Facebook, Instagram. I mean, like he said, he's got notable clients. He doesn't really necessarily need the hype, but please come hang out with him for a weekend. Check it out. Learn how to shoot rifles long range. I know that. Sign me up. I'm going to have to experience that with my kids sometime. Um, and follow and support this man and what he does just because it's it's literally keeping like-minded people in business and it's literally keeping like-minded mentalities connected. Your network is your net worth if you've been paying attention to anything that we've been teaching you on this podcast. So, Will, thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, everybody else. Thank you for your time, brother. Thanks for the invite and uh, appreciate your service to our country. Uh, We sound the same same line, brother. And uh, I love you. Yeah, I love you too, man. And on that, guys, we'll see you on the next one.